Ben, I see you are embedded today. I am embedded. I am lying in a bed. Where is this bed you are lying in? In a hotel room in, in Miami Beach. I decamped. This is my first travel since the pandemic began, and I decided it was time to take lawfare on the road. And, and so I am okay. indoors today only for rational security listeners. And you left Tammy behind to just wallow in Washington. Why? Because I am not yet fully immunized. That is coming soon. But I have to say, Ben, for a guy in bed in Miami Beach, you don't sound relaxed enough. Like, <laughs> go, go find a chaise long and... Uh, and digest a French novel and then come yeah, back man. To you had every opportunity to do rational security by the pool. <laughs> I could have, and then you guys would be <laughs> complaining about the sound. That's probably, that's probably true. Fair, fair. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the definitely not indefinitely suspended edition. I'm Shane Harris. I am not in Miami, nor have I been indefinitely suspended from Facebook yet. Uh, That's I true. haven't even been temporarily suspended from Facebook ever. Yeah, I've never, been, I've never been suspended from any social media. I've been banned from Facebook not once, but twice. Both times for the same thing. But this thing. was an accident, wasn't it? Yes. Nothing you did that was wrong. Well, I, I included QAnon content on Facebook because I shared the In Lieu of Fun show where we had uh, Adrienne LaFrance, the executive editor of The Atlantic, talking about an article that she'd written on QAnon. And so that caused me to get banned twice from Facebook, despite the intervention of senior management. This seems like to point to a flaw in the algorithm. I'm just going to throw that out there, but you know... All right. I was going to raise it with the oversight board and litigate it up to the top, but they reversed course and fixed it before I had the chance. I think there's an increasingly long list of topics that if you mention them in a Facebook post, Facebook will at a minimum say, are you sure you want to do that? Are you really sure you want to share that? You want to post that? Because that has a word in it. They should at least give you a heads up. Well, they did not do that for Donald Trump. Yeah. Uh, we will talk about that on the podcast today. I am here in the remote Washington, D.C., not Miami Jungle Studio, with my good friends Ben Wittes and Tamara Coffin Wittes. Hi, guys. Hey, Shane. Susan is away this week. I think the remote Jungle Studio today includes a Miami Beach hotel room. I guess technically, yes. It's now a re The remote Jungle Studio is wherever we are, so I guess this is coming to you live ish well not live but from miami and washington that's a first that's another historic marker for rational security history on the podcast this week president biden says he will raise the cap on refugees admitted to the united states a federal judge accuses the justice department and former attorney general bill barr you remember him of misleading her and congress about the advice he got on whether to charge former president trump and an oversight board decides Facebook was right to suspend Donald Trump, but leaves open the question of whether to permanently kick him off the social media platform. Let us start with the news from President Biden on refugees. Uh, reading here from my colleague Sean Sullivan's coverage in The Post. On Wednesday, President Biden 
has lifted the annual limit on the number of refugees who can be admitted into the United States through September to 62,500 people, but said admissions would fall short of that mark. He said in a statement that he was raising the record low cap of 15,000 set by the Trump administration, which, quote, did not reflect America's values as a nation, and that he welcomes and supports refugees. But he added that, quote, the sad truth is the U.S. will not be able to fill all of the nearly 63,000 slots. Tammy, the administration went back and forth on its position on this issue of how many refugees to allow into the United States. Some saw that as an early foreign policy misstep by the new administration. Remind us how we got to this final decision, but also what's at stake here in these numbers and how significant it is that they're being raised quite significantly from the number of 15,000. Right. So it it is very meaningful, I think, that it's being raised from the abysmally low and historically very, very low level set by the Trump administration. The Trump administration, of course, was notoriously hostile to refugees and immigrants of all kinds, but particularly refugee admissions, and tried through a variety of measures to halt refugee admissions entirely. And they did that not only through declaratory policy and through things like lowering the cap, which the president gets to set annually, but also through a whole host of administrative and personnel measures. And I think that's exactly why the incoming Biden team ran into trouble in how to deal with this. So first thing is, through the course of a rocky and incomplete transition, the Biden team didn't have really full information on how degraded the federal capacity to bring in and resettle refugees had become over the course of the of the Trump years. DHS personnel who'd been reassigned, paperwork that had been, you know, canceled, refugees who, because they had had to wait longer than originally planned, would have to go through all the screening processes afresh before they would be eligible to be resettled. All of that just created this huge backlog and a lot of complexity in unwinding the damage and rebuilding the capacity simply to do the administrative work. And then there's what happened to the domestic nonprofit independent agencies that resettle refugees once they get to the United States, the people who meet them at the airport, help them find apartments and apply for jobs and learn English and all that stuff. There are um, seven of these groups. And because the Trump administration was so intent on constraining refugee resettlement, they also cut funding to those groups. Those groups didn't have any work to do. And so they, they had to lay people off. And now they have to rebuild all that capacity. That was one big thing, is that the Biden administration was reluctant to set a higher cap that they knew they couldn't meet. And so they said they were going to increase the cap, but the president wouldn't sign off officially on the order to do so. And then they got hit with just a huge amount of criticism from progressive groups for not having raised the cap. They now have raised the cap, but said explicitly, we're not going to meet it. And that's a very awkward thing for a new administration to do. Typically, you don't want to make promises you can't keep. This time, they're saying up front that they can't keep it. And then, of course, the other thing that was going on was the politics of the surge of immigrants and asylum uh, seekers at the border. 
And so I think there was also a little bit of political squeamishness in the White House about coming in and immediately raising a cap, knowing that Republicans would target that for criticism. And so now, you know, I think they figured out their messaging on the border and they've decided they can go ahead and raise the cap, but also say they're not they're not going to be able to meet their goals. So symbolically, it's important, though, because it peels away the really negative message that the Trump administration had sent to the world. It also seems to me, and tell me if you think this is wrong, but this this also points to a kind of, I mean, maybe pragmatism is the word. I mean, you pointed out that, you know, there was a misstep. They went back and forth on this. They got a ton of blowback. Ultimately, you know, the president does settle on a number that is significantly greater than where it was before. But, you know, he's being honest about like, look, you know, this is just the reality of things. I mean, is that, does, does this strike you as, illustrative of a kind of pragmatism that's emerging in the foreign policy and a kind of candor? Or was this just a kind of a crappy situation they found themselves in and there was you know, no way to put lipstick on the pig? I would say it's more of the latter. <laughs> um, now, the cap that they've set is in line with numbers during the Obama years. And so it, it looks, you know, kind of like it's just a rollback to life before Trump. But I think it's a really crappy situation. And I, you know, we've talked before on the show about the damage that Trump did at DHS and other institutions during the course of his presidency. This is a consequence. I also think that this cap, as low as it is, faces tremendous pressure, not only because we're withdrawing from Afghanistan and we have a whole lot of folks there who worked with the U.S. military and with the U.S. government that we may need to give asylum to. But we're also, you know, trying to make the Biden Harris team is trying to make arguments around the world about democracy and human rights and standing up to Russia and China. And that suggests that we should be taking in people from Hong Kong and we should be taking in people from from Russia, you know, maybe we should be taking in Navalny allies and and so the pressure on this refugee cap is just intense. Ben, what is the national security and foreign policy interest in accepting refugees? I don't think there's a substantial national security value in accepting refugees, except with respect to the optics and perception of the United States. And there is huge foreign policy value in accepting refugees, which is to say that, you know, a lot of refugees and asylum seekers eventually do go back to countries and play important roles in them. They do tend to remember the countries that gave them refuge when they needed it. The major reason to do this, however, is not that it's, you know, for some important role that it plays on behalf of the United States. It's just because it's the right thing to do and because we can. And so I would not frame the argument in any terms other than humanitarian terms. I think if you're a country that stands up against authoritarianism, one of the ways that you do that is by taking in victims of authoritarianism. And uh, we do benefit in huge ways by bringing in people who are often very highly skilled, very courageous, very uh, prominent in some way or another. But I also just think, you know, if China wants to oppress Uyghurs, we should be a home for Uyghurs. If China wants to oppress Hong Kong, 
residents, we should be a haven for them. And if uh, Russia wants to oppress the Navalny forces, we should welcome them here. I don't really think about it that much in utilitarian terms. That's what immigration is for. I think of it in very sort of what role do we want to play in the world kind of terms. And also, you know, what is our you know, sense, uh, given that we are a country that purports to represent something internationally, what should we do for people who are victims of governments who do otherwise? I think there's also like, as I suggested, I think it's really hard to separate and practice the refugee policy question from the broader immigration policy question. And I think that Biden's trying to do a little jujitsu here. You know, the Republicans would love to have a broad national conversation about people flooding into the country and taking your jobs and the Democrats opening the borders. Right. And I think what Biden's trying to do here by separating both spatially and in terms of messaging the southern border stuff and, you know, tasking Kamala Harris to become the kind of Central America migration czar on the one hand, and then a few weeks later doing this on the other, they're trying to kind of split these issues up and go for the things, and the Biden White House has done this on issue after issue, go for the things that they know are popular with the American public. The American public believes in giving refuge to people who are persecuted in other countries for reasons of faith or gender or politics or whatever. And so if they can do the refugee piece, that's a way of, number one, separating it and insulating it from the rest of the immigration debate. And also it does something that they know Republicans are not going to get any juice for criticizing them for. All right, we're going to go out of order here a little bit and turn to the Facebook oversight board decision. I have to admit, this was sort of a confusing decision when I first read it. This stems back to Facebook's decision to indefinitely suspend. I think they were the words that they used President Trump for his use of the platform. The oversight board didn't exactly make a decision on whether to permanently ban him, as I read it. And it faulted Facebook for indefinitely suspending him in the first place, a decision the board described as vague and uncertain. I'm uncertain about this. Fortunately, we have the expert on the Oversight Board here to explain what the hell just happened. It's Kate Klonick, Assistant Professor of Law at St. John's University School of Law, first-time rational security guest, host of In Lieu of Fun. Kate, this is like worlds merging right now that you're here. I know. I love it. I'm though. so excited. It's a crossover episode. I'm so it's excited It's a crossover episode. Yes, exactly. It's so good. Kate, this is like your moment. I was going to say this is like Angel and Buffy, like when yeah. Buffy shows up in Angel. There you go. <laughs> totally. there totally. you go. Um, so, Kate, you wrote extensively about the Facebook oversight board for The New Yorker, and people should go check out your article. What happened today? This decision was, I mean, I think safe to say, like the most anticipated decision of the board, right? So what what exactly did they say? And let's we'll get to what happens next. But what what was the ruling from this board today? Yeah. So the ruling today, I mean, it was actually funny because I was talking to Ben about this. I was like, we were kind of discussing how there are kind of two holdings, um, but there's much more than that. There is like, it's a very lengthy opinion and it is confusing in a lot of ways. But basically the main thing is that they said that 
in the moment of what was happening around January 6th, that Facebook was correct in applying its dangerous orgs standard to Trump and taking down his tweets and taking down his uh, account, but that the indefinite ban part of it was vague and not clear. And it is unclear whether going forward now five months out of of the events of January 6th, if basically Trump is still a threat as an incitement to violence or as, as a dangerous org. And they basically kick it back to Facebook to say, you have to, you have to allow your standards to be more clear. You have to come up with clear standards. We're not going to make them for you on um, world leaders and public figures and newsworthiness and what all of these things are. And then you have to apply them and then we'll tell you whether or not this is going to be something that is consistent with international human rights law, your own values and your own community standards. But you don't even have a system yet. And so go back and get your house in order before we before we uh, kind of weigh in on it. It's a very like D.C. circuit kicking something back down to the administrative agency type of decision. OK, so, Kate, does that mean did the oversight board punt or were they saying to Facebook essentially, hey, great idea that we have this board, but you haven't even really figured out what the policies are you want us to decide on for you. So this is kind of premature. It's kind of the latter. I would say it's more the latter. I wouldn't. I mean, it is punting. So let's kind of talk about that for a second, which is that I do think that there is something super interesting about the idea that Facebook maybe wanted the oversight board to be this group of experts in free expression and international human rights that could solve the intractable problem that we've never been able to solve in all of human history of basically of 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 uh, of speech and freedom of expression and bad speech and good speech and the board is like oh hell no like we're not going to do this and i actually think that not carrying water for facebook is a power move here and makes it really uh really thoughtful tammy yeah, so I guess that's kind of my question, if, if we can drill down on that power move a little bit, because it strikes me as like, it, it's not punting, it's hot potato. Like, we don't own responsibility. I just wrote that lead in my op-ed. Sorry. I, okay. My <laughs> I literally hot potatoed. Yes, exactly. So like the oversight board is saying, no, Facebook, you cannot avoid responsibility for your policies and your choices by kicking them to us, you know, we're pushing that responsibility back on you. And of course, that's the only answer. It is Facebook. It's their platform. They are the company. But then what is this oversight board for? What role does it play if it's not there to help share responsibility with Facebook? I think we don't know yet. And I think that what's exciting, though, is that this is a nice thing that it it was never going to do this well. It was never going to be do a good job if it was going to start trying to play that game of setting the rules for Facebook on speech. So what I guess I'm really excited about from this decision is it's starting to look like they are at least creating institutional procedure and reliable transparency and accountability that we didn't think that they would necessarily have to hold Facebook responsible for their own actions. 
And that's exciting because right now there's there's just also been this cacophony for 15 years around these speech platforms and how they run things and how they don't and who comes up and who stays down and how famous you are and how not famous you are. And if you're a Nazi, you're not a Nazi. And now there's just this like, I have no idea how long it actually is, but a very lengthy, well-reasoned, well-laid out opinion that establishes a record and facts around how this decision was made and says, you're not telling us a whole bunch of stuff. Tell us more. You haven't even told us what you actually did here. I just think it's like, it's just so, I just, it just feels like a breath of fresh air. Yeah, Ben. I just want to say that Facebook, I think actually won something pretty substantial here. So on this first point, which is, did Facebook act reasonably in removing this content in real time and in banning Donald Trump from the, in taking action against Donald Trump's account? The Oversight Board unequivocally affirms what Facebook did and in fact, in some ways, asks it to clarify its policies even more stringently uh, and to, to act more quickly in the future. And so I, I think if Facebook is looking, I, I totally agree with Kate's evaluation of the second half of the opinion, but it seems to me that Facebook won something, which is, you know, Jack Dorsey at Twitter has no record to point to of an independent overseer saying, yeah, totally reasonable to throw him off Twitter, though I think a lot of people think it was totally reasonable to throw him off Twitter. But in exactly the way that Kate describes there being a record with facts and with, you know, a procedural history that demands more from Facebook on the remedy side, there is also exactly that thing affirming what Facebook did on the initial action itself. Kate, does this mean it's likely that is the oversight board's decision going to then compel Facebook to make new policy? And is that the goal of the oversight board? Well, I mean, there are a lot of goals for the oversight board. I think that there are everyone had like it was kind of like some type of like weird like Rorschach test. It was like whatever everyone would like hold it up and it was like, it's a butterfly. No, no, it's it's actually a bat. Like, but I think that this is one of the things that was imagined, especially by the top policy team at Facebook that I spent time with, was that it would start to create clear signals out of the noise as to where their policy should be and what it should be and how it should be structured. And I think that I think that there's a lot of people inside Facebook and the policy team right now that are thrilled with this decision because it gives them clout and uh, and reason to basically say, no, this is what we were saying all along. We have to have better system of like, you know, defining who public figures are, defining what newsworthiness is, everything else. And. We also know that like maybe it's more likely to be seen as legitimate by the board if it adheres to uh, international human rights law, which is like a whole nother question about whether that's a good thing or not, uh, honestly. Kate, I think most people understand Donald Trump's social media presence as largely defined by Twitter. Can you just give us a sense of how meaningful Facebook was to him as a platform for communication and, and and importantly for spreading disinformation and lies. It was essentially a retread. 
of Twitter. I mean, it was like they just cross posted. It was like mostly and but it had network effects. I mean, that's why Donald Trump's magical new new uh, social media thing or his like it's basically effectively a blog that he launched where he just put himself like just made a website and it's just him hanging out. It's not as powerful as Twitter because it doesn't have the network effects and attention and there's not the relationship in the community. And so in that sense, Facebook was significant. There are a lot of people who followed him on Facebook versus on Twitter, uh, just because they are on Facebook and not on Twitter. I also think that in terms of advertising and fundraising, it was significant. And so being banned from it for that reason is, is, is meaningful as well. It had 34 million followers. Right. I mean, there's just a question of reach when you're on a platform that everybody's on anyway, rather than a blog, which I think you're right, Kate, it's basically a blog, what he has now with it, you actually have to go to it and look at it. I was listening to Carl Rove on a podcast, Hacks on Tap, the other day, talking about, you know, the difference between when he wrote a column that pissed off Trump and Trump still had his social media accounts and he would get deluged with hate mail. And he said the last time he did it and Trump didn't have this platform, he got two, you know, pieces of hate mail. And, the, and like the dramatic difference, it, it really tells us something not only about Trump and, and what made him powerful, but I think it also tells us something about all of the ecosystem of those platforms, right? So that it's not just the individual saying whatever they're saying that's harmful, it's the way the ecosystem amplifies it and spreads its reach. It's the fact that journalists are all over Twitter and, you know, comment on all these tweets. That's what makes it even more powerful. Ben. So, Kate, I have a question. If you are Jack Dorsey at Twitter or the YouTube, I forget the name of the person who runs YouTube, are you today thinking, huh, oversight board? Good idea. Uh, you know, that Zuckerberg <laughs> asshole may be a schmuck, but this, this, you know, getting Mike McConnell and, and, and a bunch of law professors and human rights types to make your content policy for you, there's something to that. Or are you saying, glad we don't have a goddamn oversight board? <laughs> I, I think probably some of both. Um, but I do think that what this is telling us, and this is always what I was optimist, cautiously optimistic about with the board, was like, you know, everyone is like, it's a Potemkin village, it's like a distraction, it's a, it's just a PR move, it's what I'm like, but it could, it is giving a sliver of devolution of power, like they're devolving a little bit of power, and they're giving it to this this entity. And this, if it's a serious group of people that they actually put on this, they will do a lot with it and use it really well, or at least give us some type of new institutional governance that starts to solve this private platform, public rights distinction that we, we, we can't solve. And so I think that there's two things happening. I think that there is probably a sense of like, well, I'm really glad that we don't have an oversight board right now. We don't have to deal with this. And they're probably also thinking this is coming. Governance is coming to these private platforms. And this is going to be, people are going to want this. This board's doing is a real thing. And this is something that 
we might not be able to escape any longer. Okay, just last question in the minute we have left. So what happens now? When do we finally learn the fate, the ultimate fate of Donald Trump on Facebook? I have a hard time believing that you're ever going to be able to use international human rights law standards to permanently ban someone from speaking. Just, it just like goes against international human rights standards. So what would end up happening, honestly, I think is a super dorky, but what's going to end up happening is maybe a level in which you have this go back to Facebook and Facebook decides to make it its own rules so that it can permanently ban people. And then you have a question of a Chevron moment basically, of the oversight board having to decide whether they're going to hold international human rights law as the standard writ large as like the constitution, or they're going to hold Facebook's own rules as like kind of as like the constitution. And so I think that that's super dorky. I'm probably the only one excited about that. And I hated ad law. So like, but like, I like, I just, I'm, I think that that's kind of probably where we're headed. Well, since you are excited about it, I'm excited because you are the expert on this and it's awesome of you to come on and talk to us about it. Thank you, Kate. Thanks, Kate. All right. Well, we're going to do a Donald Trump two for you guys, sort of. Oh my God. I thought we were like moving away from this. <laughs> yeah, well, here we are. Again, you guys, listeners, you are about to hear a name you haven't heard in months on this podcast. <laughs> Amy Berman Jackson. Ratings are going to go way up, but they're like, no, never mind. Uh, I'm reading here from uh, the New York Times coverage from Tuesday. A federal judge in Washington accused the Justice Department under Attorney General William P. Barr of misleading her and Congress about advice he had received from top department officials on whether President Trump should have been charged with obstructing the Russia investigation and ordered that a related memo be released. Kind of a long lead. Uh, <laughs> Judge Amy Berman Jackson of the U.S. District Court in Washington said in a ruling late on Monday that the department's obfuscation appeared to be part of a pattern in which top officials like Mr. Barr were untruthful to Congress and the public about the Russia investigation. So, Ben, this goes back in part to that period when the Mueller report was being released to the public and Barr famously got ahead of it with that four page, I think it was, statement we all remember that many people, I think, saw as spinning the investigation's findings in a way that was favorable to Trump. And I think from reading the coverage here, Judge Jackson would appear to agree with that assessment. So, what did she find exactly? And, and what's the effect of this ruling? We can talk about the, the lawsuit that's involved, but but what is she saying here that Barr, she thinks Barr did? Yeah, so I have only read the opinion, uh, which is a 41-page uh, Freedom of Information Act opinion quickly. But what Amy Berman Jackson is saying here is that that period where Bill Barr in a over a weekend, received the Mueller report and uh, then issued a statement purporting to summarize it. He received internal advice from the Justice Department about how to not just how to characterize it, but how to describe his decision. Remember, Bob Mueller didn't reach a judgment about obstruction of justice. Bill Barr 
in the course of that weekend did reach a judgment that he was closing the case. And he uh, received advice about how to characterize that decision and how to characterize the underlying report. And the Justice Department has sought to withhold that advice on grounds that it is what's called a pre-decisional document, which is a sort of deliberative process as to how a decision is made, which is exempt from FOIA, and also that it's attorney-client privilege protected. And Amy Berman Jackson, and it's a pretty sharply worded opinion, it's basically saying that the Justice Department is mischaracterizing this opinion. It wasn't really pre-decisional because there was always going to be it was kind of foregone conclusion that they were going to find this. They were discussing as a strategic matter how to characterize it, a decision that was essentially pre-cooked. But then secondly, that it wasn't clearly legal advice because this was also just kind of political spin and strategy. So I I think it is, you know, for those who are inclined to as I once put it, give Bill Barr the benefit of the doubt, which I certainly was uh, at the time that he was nominated. And this incident was one of the reasons I changed my mind, honestly. I think it's another blow to Barr's claim to be a sort of straight shooter that, you know, here is a federal judge saying, you know, his legal opinion, which he presented as such, wasn't really that. It was kind of a cooked deal from the beginning, and this was a just a spin memo, basically. Uh, the immediate consequence of it is that this will, unless the Justice Department appeals it, this will now be released. And I think that will give people, certainly, unless she is mischaracterizing it, that will give people uh, another basis on which to hold Barr's uh, uh, feet to the fire and critique his performance in this episode, which really does seem to be lamentable. So I look, I I think that's all that's all helpful and interesting as far as figuring out what actually went down in the Justice Department when Bill Barr was doing all this stuff. And, you know, but I I guess I'm a little more focused now on the import of the what the judge is saying here. She's saying the Justice Department lied to the court. <laughs> um, she's saying, I as a judge can't trust the Justice Department anymore to tell me whether something is privileged or not because they have lied about it here. And that to me is really troubling because this isn't just one man. This isn't just Bill Barr. This is the Department of Justice. A whole lot of people you know, not only wrote that memo, but then argued in court that that memo should be protected. And so that to me is evidence of the erosion of norms and that degrades further public trust in institutions and in the rule of law. So it is another example of how far we've sunk, how quickly. And I'm really worried about how we get out of that. I guess my question though is this, this is a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit at the end of the day. This memo is getting released because it's not actually privileged. It's not pre-decisional, as it turns out. And so the, the remedy here that the court can provide is transparency. But I'm not sure that transparency helps repair the breach of trust, public trust. 
in the rule of law? And how do we do that? That's my question. So I, I don't want to overstate her findings here. She is not saying that the Justice Department is lying to her. Judges are forced under a wide array of circumstances to evaluate overbroad claims of privilege and to evaluate in specifically in the FOIA context whether the government is interpreting exemptions in a fashion that is too protective. She is clearly annoyed at how the Justice Department characterized this situation. And she does at one point say even that the plaintiff organization, which is called Crew, uh, without having seen the document, characterized it more accurately than the Justice Department did. Uh, That said, when a federal judge wants to say that attorneys have misrepresented things to her, they don't say it this way. This is this is an opinion sharply rejecting their position, not saying you came into my court and committed misconduct and lied. And I don't think we should we should confuse the two. There there is one way though, in where okay, maybe she's not accusing them of lying, but it seems like she is calling bullshit. She is calling bullshit. Yeah, so she signals out Barr for how he spun the findings in that letter that he put out. And we've all been through that. We've talked about that on the podcast, but she says, I'll just read this line here. The attorney general's characterization of what he'd hardly had time to skim, meaning the Mueller report, much less study closely, prompted an immediate reaction as politicians and pundits took to their microphones and Twitter feeds to decry what they feared was an attempt to hide the ball. The Times goes on to write that Jackson's rebuke shed new light on Mr. Barr's decision not to prosecute Mr. Trump. And she also wrote that although the department portrayed the advice memo as a legal document protected by attorney-client privilege, it was done in concert with Barr's publicly released summary, quote, written by the very same people at the very same time. So she really is saying, like, you guys were trying to pull a fast one. This was a spin operation. It was disingenuous. You, Bingo. you know, it, yeah. And, 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 for, and, and I think there's something to your point about transparency, maybe, Tammy, in restoring you know, credibility here. I mean, you could argue, I suppose, that the election maybe to some degree restores it because I guess that style of governing was rebuked by the voters. But also here's a judge coming in and, and saying like, no, you were right to think that they were trying to, you know, pull the wool over your eyes. That's what happened here. And I'm going to call him out for it. That That's right. And look, there is, I, I don't mean to understate her annoyance here, the, uh, the language I referred to earlier, which appears on page 24 of the opinion, reads, in sum, while Crew had never laid eyes on the document, its summary was considerably more accurate than the one supplied by the department's declarants. That's a good so, burn. Uh, yeah, it's a good burn. And she laid on the following page, she says, of even greater importance to this decision, the Justice Department's affidavits are so inconsistent with the evidence in the record that they are not worthy of credence. So she is, this is an annoyed federal judge. And I do think... (laughs) That's annoyed? That sounds a little more than annoyed, but I mean, you know better than I where it falls Uh, on the spectrum. Look, when federal judges want to accuse people of contempt or misconduct, they know how to do it. This is a judge who is sharply rejecting the positions of the Justice Department and, as Shane says, calling bullshit. She is also 
as Shane rightly points out, the New York Times saying, she is also saying, hey, the internal advice in the Justice Department was prepared in coordination with the public-facing statements of the Attorney General for the same purpose. And that is, you know, not traditional legal advice. It's ass-covering garbage. And uh, it's not the way the Justice Department should behave. And so I think in this instance, you know, having the remedy be that she reveals this memo and assuming the justice department does not appeal this decision which i can't imagine it would uh the memo will now be revealed and people will hold it up against what bill barr said and it will be used to embarrass him further about that and i think that's that's good that's right and we presume that the justice department won't appeal it because it's now a justice department under president biden and the arguments for withholding it were being put forth by trump administration officials right so i don't know when the briefing in this was done okay so biden people could be arguing for it yeah okay. the the argument for appealing it would be hey uh, we want the government has this a strong interest in the broadest possible interpretation of the attorney-client privilege in this context, yeah. and so it's a it's a this is a damaging decision. On the other hand, if she is correct and the statements the, the declarants made in affidavits are in error, you don't want to go up to the court of appeals on facts that bad in defense of Bill Barr. And so my assumption is. The document will probably be made public. Uh, certainly, Merrick Garland does not have an interest in defending the attorney general's ability to spin mischar- and mischaracterize public you know, investigative work product. Well, having been on the end of a number of denials under the Freedom of Information Act based on the grounds that the document I wanted was pre-decisional, uh, <laughs> go Judge Jackson. I also just, just want to say about, shit. about pre-decisional, any document worth its salt is pre-decisional because after the decision, <laughs> they're not discussing what to do anymore. Right. <laughs> yeah, I just I'm gonna go on record. Yeah, it, it's a bullshit standard, but like whatevs. There's more than one way to pry loose that information. All right, let's go on to uh, object lessons. I'm feeling spicy. I'm gonna go first in my object lesson. All right, mine's like two part object lesson. The first is a tweet by our favorite former CIA director and Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo. Oh, no. no, this does not involve him okay. like eating like dried fruit or any like iconography in the background. I just feel like this is the Trump administration throwback edition. Anytime somebody brings up Mike Pompeo on the show, I'm just obliged to remind people that this man sent me a letter on CIA letterhead saying I should be better than I am. And I'm I'm just not. (laughs) (laughs) You have not lived up to his commands. All right. So Mike Pompeo, as backstory to this, the CIA put out... An ad, which I'm going to confess, I did not look at the ad, the recruitment ad, because the Twitter reaction to it seemed so 
ridiculous that I didn't really feel like I needed to look at the ad. But it was talking about basically diversity in the workforce. And some people were criticizing the ad saying that it seemed, you know, unnecessarily woke. And it was like the CIA was playing politics. Uh, And I'm going to get to this point in a second. But Mike Pompeo then, of course, has to pile onto this. And he tweets, when I was director of the CIA, we valued individuals based on their talent and skill, not their race or sexuality. I'll never forget what one female analyst said to me, quote, thank you for valuing me for my work. I want my abilities and achievements to define me, not my sexuality. He goes on to say the collection of incredibly talented patriots serving America at the CIA is what makes it the best spy agency in the world. And we must continue to recruit the best and the brightest. We can't afford to risk our national security to appease some liberal woke agenda. Okay, first, as a preamble point. I, I I don't know who this analyst he says said that. So, and it's kind of hard to imagine an analyst, frankly, walking up to the director of the Central Intelligence Agency. But let's just put that aside for a second. While Mike Pompeo was the director of the CIA, there was an ongoing series of reports called the Director's Diversity in Leadership Study, which was aimed at trying to foster a more, as they put it, inclusive environment. And hopefully promote more people of color and minorities and women to leadership positions in the CIA. Um, I will note that apparently for the year in which he was director in this multi-years-long process, the word director's report was dropped from the title. That's interesting. Don't know why. Nevertheless, I just want to point this out that while the man was director, it was agency policy to, in fact, promote diversity and inclusion, and that the reason the CIA does this, and this is well documented, not to defend the policy, is not part of like a liberal woke agenda. It was happening in the Trump administration. It's because the CIA puts a premium on diversity of background and experience because they think it makes people better spies and better analysts, right? It actually goes to the point of tradecraft. The idea here is that we have to solve really hard problems. We like people from diverse backgrounds. That has been going on for decades at the CIA, which, you know, has kind of over the years moved away from the sort of we only recruit people who went to Yale and like new Bill Donovan kind of thing, right? Towards being a lot more broad in their experience. So just like, is yeah, not to defend an agency policy, I wouldn't do that. But to point out that like, this is a straw man argument by Mike Pompeo. That's not why the CIA puts an emphasis on gender, on diversity. And they were doing it while he was the director. So there you go. Mike Pompeo, closet woke guy. I wouldn't go that far. Ben. I have a very quick object lesson. I traveled down to Miami Beach. As viewers of In Lieu of Fun know, by Amtrak, the trip took more than 26 hours. It was supposed to be 24 hours, but we got uh, held up behind a drawbridge accident. And (sighs) It was delightful. I love the DC to uh, Miami Amtrak. Uh, it moves slowly and deliberatively. The cabins on the sleeper car are very pleasant. And my experience recording, if you listen to today's Lawfare podcast on Rudy Giuliani, that was recorded on Amtrak, as was yesterday's in lieu of fun with on Jonathan the train. Ryan. Yeah. Um, With Jonathan Rausch, we did, in lieu of fun, live from 
Amtrak. It was an all-train edition. We, we heard about Jonathan Rausch crossing the uh, Rocky Mountains with a collapsed lung by train and the pressure on his lungs. It was, uh, it was a good story. He also played a song. So um, my object lesson is Amtrak, the new sponsor of <laughs> Rational Security. <laughs> Travel. They have great internet, apparently. I, I used my hotspot, but it worked really well. Uh, oh, okay. You can do, you can get work done. Uh, the food is better than airplanes. It's not great, but it's better than airplanes. And the views are amazing. How many wow. hours did it take you to get to Miami from Washington? 27. I rest. <laughs> Every time he mentions it, it gets a little longer. <laughs> it, was, it was really fun, though. And oh, I'm going to do it gosh. in the other direction in a few days. Oh, Lord. Well, we'll see you in a month. All right, Tammy, what's your object? Okay, so I am holding up my object for your admiration, Shane Harris. It this, looks delicious. This is a delightful bottle of bourbon called the Dark Door Washington Street Bourbon Whiskey. It came to me all the way from Washington State. Yes, indeed, there is bourbon from Washington State. It was a gift from a friend, a high school friend. But what's super cool about it is not just that it's a gift from a high school friend, but this bourbon is the product of a high school classmate, Eric Leadholm, who runs Wildwood Spirits Company out in Washington State. I have to say, I, I like bourbon. Ben is a scotch drinker. I'm more of a bourbon drinker. We all like to try new scotches and whiskeys on this podcast. And Shane, you got to try this. It's a great bourbon, but it's also like it's got this brightness to it, which is quite unusual. Very unlike your typical Kentucky, Tennessee, complex. I, I like drinking it straight with some ice and it feels very summery. So I just wanted to bring it to your attention and also say, Eric, way to go, man. This is really impressive. Thank you for this awesome bottle. And tell us the name one more time for the listeners. Uh, one more time for the listeners. This is called the Dark Door Bourbon Whiskey from Wildwood Spirits of Washington State. See, this is why we need to get back in the actual jungle studio. We would be drinking this right now. You would be, and you would be loving it. We'd be like on our second glass right now. I don't care if it is <laughs> one o'clock in the afternoon. How do you know I'm not? <laughs> there you go. I shouldn't assume. I shouldn't assume. Oh, my goodness. Well, maybe we'll all go have a whiskey now because we are at the end of the podcast, you guys. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can find pro Amtrak merch and propaganda at benlovesamtrak.27hours. Dot train. Dude. <laughs> the lawfare store.com. Can you buy like little mini trains? And there's no Amtrak <laughs> merch available on it. You need like a little tra- a little Amtrak train that says lawfare. Yeah, that's 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 there. You can buy trains, full size trains. You can buy full size trains at the <laughs> <laughs> with with a sleeper car. You can buy your own sleeper car. I love it. <clears throat> you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. We have not been indefinitely suspended from Facebook. The oversight board not yet. not waiting on our fate. Not yet. Give it time. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure and leave a rating and a review. It really helps us out and helps others find the podcast as well. Share the podcast. Push the little square button with the arrow. 
I don't know why that's a share button. It's never like, I don't know. I it's Share like, that baby. It's just, just, I don't know, maybe an S. Maybe an S would be a nice share button. We should we should go that way. Our audio engineer this week was Ian Enright. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Music this week by Mark Zuckerberg and the Hot Potatoes. Ah, nice. That actually sounds Very like nice. a band that he it's might good. Form. It's good. Yeah. Right? Kind of a jazz band, right? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, sort of like that. I'm not sure what improv, instrument he would play. You're suspended. You're not suspended. It's yeah, improv. Like that. Back and forth. It's really good, inconsistent music. Susfiti Yan is not available, unfortunately, for their new world tour. On behalf of my good friends, Ben Wittes and Tamara Kaufman Wittes, I'm Shane Harris. We will talk to you next week. Goodbye.